Today I'm going to start off a little bit different, and I want to start today by telling you a story. And this story is about a guy named Bob. And that's just the name that I gave him, but we're going to roll with it. Bob is a Christian man. He's in his early 40s. He's married. He has two children. And he works a high-stress job for a well-known company. To put it mildly, Bob has a very busy life. His typical day starts by waking up around 5 a.m. He showers. He gets cleaned up. He dresses himself. He, gra he grabs a quick breakfast, which usually consists of cereal or a bagel, and he's on his way out the door so that he can be at the office by around 6.30. He wants to beat his coworkers to the building so he can work in some peace and quiet. His boss has a deadline for a big project that's due in about a month, and Bob can't afford to waste any time. During his lunch, Bob has mastered the art of multitasking. He eats his lunch like someone's about to steal it, while simultaneously answering emails on his laptop and replying to texts from his wife reminding him that his son has baseball practice later that day at 6 p.m. Bob works tirelessly throughout the day until he calls it quits around 5.30. He drives home to pick up his son and takes him to practice. Once practice is over, around 8 o'clock or so, he stops by McDonald's drive through to pick up some food and then he heads home. After having a brief chat with his wife, he realizes that it's 9 p.m. and it's time to put the kids to bed. After reading a few stories, Bob tucks in his children, he brushes his teeth, he crawls in the bed and ready to repeat the same routine tomorrow. While exhausted and lying in bed, Bob realizes that he needs to complete his Bible study lesson for the week. But he assures himself, I'll get it done tomorrow. Can anyone relate to what Bob is experiencing? Does your life feel like it's jam-packed with all sorts of responsibilities and activities that you find it hard to devote time to God's work? If so, I'm here to let you know that you are not alone. I bring up this topic because I know that this is something that I have and continue to struggle with in my own life. As Christians, we all know that it's very important to read and study the Bible. But are we taking the necessary measures to ensure that we are growing spiritually? In order to understand what God desires, we need to study what he has revealed to us. I want you to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to look at verse 2. Here it says, And like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, just like babies need their milk from its mother to physically grow and mature, we too need to seek out the word of God in order to spiritually grow and mature. The problem is once we begin our walk, or once we begin our Christian walk, we often become stagnant and content with where we currently are. Next, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. That's Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 14. And I want you to listen to what the Hebrew writer says. Starting in verse 12. 
It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to distinguish between what is good and what is evil. You see, the first century church, there were those who were not developing. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had repented of their sins and they had been baptized. The problem was once they came up out of the water, they didn't continue taking those steps to move forward in their spiritual walk. Just as a human baby is not prepared to eat a slice of pizza, for example, these Christians were not ready for spiritually solid food, but, and this is a big but, they should have been. For the next several minutes, I want you to take the time and I want you to reflect on your own spiritual journey. I want you to ask yourself, am I dedicating the time and am I putting in the effort to continue to grow spiritually? But before you reach that conclusion, I want to prepare our minds by starting off with four key characteristics of the Bible. And there's many key characteristics of the Bible, but these are just four that we're going to go over today. Let's start with characteristic number one. The Bible is living and active. Go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter four. That's Hebrews chapter four. And we're just going to look at one verse and that's verse 12. Hebrews chapter four. And in verse 12, it says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, up to this point in chapter 4, the Hebrew writer has explained to the Jewish Christians who were living in Jerusalem that they should be putting forth their best effort in order to fulfill God's will. Remember, Israel failed to put their faith and trust in God while at the borders of Canaan, which led them to wander the desert for 40 years instead of settling in the land of milk and honey. Just as God only rested on the seventh day once his work was completed, so too we can only rest in our heavenly rewards if we hold fast to our faith until the end. Characteristic number two. The Bible endures forever. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 23 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. Starting in verse 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached 
to you. In these verses, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He stresses that human lives are intense and beautiful, but in the grand scheme of life, they come and go very quickly. Even those who live the most lavish, adventurous, and privileged lives start to see it fade away just as it gets started. People of every nation, every culture, every background have some type of understanding of this concept. They understand that our human life is just temporary. Peter writes this letter to remind his readers that God has provided a true home and a secure future once this life is over, and it is through Jesus Christ that we have hope of a future without end. Characteristic number three of the Bible. It is the inspired word of God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. We will look at verses 16 and 17. Now, you may have heard Larry quote this once or twice if you've been with us any point in the past year or so. Starting in verse 16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. The description here of God's word is the Greek word teonustos. And this very literally is translated as God breathed. Authors of the Bible put the words to paper and from their own personal perspectives and writing styles. But the ultimate source of this information is not human, but divine. God used human hands as instruments to convey his message to the world. And because the Bible is God's words manifested on paper, it is perfect and it is profitable in all areas of our life. In these verses, Paul lists specific areas where it is profitable. First, teaching so we are able to instruct others to know God better. Second, it is used for, repro for reproof or rebuke in order to expose or point out sinful behavior. Third, it is used for correction. God's word offers a solution to our sin. And fourth, it is used for training and righteousness. You see, it is through this practical application that we can learn what is true, what is wrong, how to correct what is wrong, and how to apply that truth to our lives. Our last characteristic of the Bible is that it holds heavenly promises. And Brian, I think we talked a little bit about this this morning with our Bible study. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at one verse, and that's verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Through these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. You see, as human beings, we tend to be skeptical of promises. Our earthly experience has taught us that many times promises are not fulfilled 
and are often used as a way to convince or manipulate others. Even when a promise is considered to be reliable, we don't count ourselves as having received anything until the promise is completely fulfilled. What we tend to see is the level of value placed on a promise is often determined by the person making it or our belief that it will be kept. But what we have to remember is that in this text, we are not talking about human promises. The God of the universe does not lie and nor does he fail to keep his word. We know that when God makes a declaration, that it is made with 100% certainty. So now that we have reviewed four of the many key characteristics of the Bible, I want to go ahead and I want to shift our focus to the title of the sermon, which was a top priority. How much time do you commit to studying God's word? Do you devote any time at all? I want to go over how to make Bible study a top priority in our lives. First, what we need to do is eliminate distractions. Turn with your Bibles to Matthew, the 14th chapter. That's Matthew chapter 14. We will look at verses 28 through 31. Matthew 14 verses 28 through 31. Now, this is a story that many of us probably know and a lot of us probably learned as small children. And it's the story of Peter walking on water to meet Jesus. Starting in verse 28, Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind... He became frightened, and when he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, these verses in Matthew chapter 14 are full of unexpected events. Jesus shows up walking on the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. This is in the very early hours of the morning after the disciples have been rowing against a rough wind all night long. They believe Jesus to be a ghost until he speaks and identifies himself. Peter, apparently convinced, has asked Jesus to command him to come out to him and walk on the water too. Now on the one hand, Peter's request shows great faith in God's power and great enthusiasm to participate with Jesus in this exciting moment. Peter's response to a chaotic moment is to declare his confidence that Christ will grant the power to do anything Christ commands. Jesus grants Peter's request, and he says simply, come. Now, amazingly, Peter climbs out of the boat and does not immediately fall through the water. He really, truly walks on the water as Jesus had just been doing. He does the impossible by the power of God. But that moment of victory didn't last very long. You see, at some point between leaving the boat and making his way to Jesus' side, 
Peter's human doubt seems to catch up with his enthusiastic faith. He suddenly notices the ferocious wind and the size of the waves around him. Fear starts to take over his faith. And when you're trying to walk on water, there's no margin for error. Peter begins to sink and crying out to Jesus to save him. It's essential to notice that Peter's total confidence in the power of Jesus allowed him to walk on the water as Jesus did. You see, initially, Peter was steadfast and he was focused on Jesus. A short time after, he got distracted. And it was the distraction that was triggered by fear that caused Peter to sink. Now, us as human beings, we might expect Jesus to say something like this. Well done, or maybe even well done, but... And then offer some corrections. Instead, Jesus offers no praise. After saving Peter from drowning, he says famously, Oh, you of little faith. And he rebukes Peter's lack of faith instead of praising the faith with which he began. And then, of course, Jesus adds, Why would you doubt? You see, as readers, we may be impressed by Peter's initial faith. But Jesus is more concerned about what stopped Peter from continuing to trust him. Peter shifted his focus to other things and became distracted. And as Christians, we often start off our walk of faith enthusiastic and willing to jump out of our metaphorical boat. But quickly we become sidetracked, which can stunt our spiritual growth. So what are some ways in which we get sidetracked in the world today? Well, How many of us have a smartphone? Have you ever been scrolling away on your phone just to pass the time? And then the next thing you know, 30 minutes has gone by in the blink of an eye. Social media companies, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, YouTube, you name it. The list goes on and on. They have spent billions and billions of dollars in research and development coming up with new ways to capture and sustain our attention for long periods of time. Anyone ever been in this situation? I think this definitely applies to those who are married. You sit down on the couch and you're with your spouse and you decide, let's watch something on Netflix. Sounds like an easy way to relax and enjoy a good show. But anyone who's been in this situation realizes it's not relaxing. And let me explain. Because in fact, it might be the most stressful environment to be in. You want to see an action movie, but she wants to see a romantic comedy. And after searching through both genres for about 15 minutes, you realize that everything available to watch is terrible or you've probably already seen it. Now, right as you're getting ready to close in on convincing your wife to watch the new show Quarterback, because you tell her, hey, it's not just about sports. It's about their families and it's about their personal lives. Just as you're about ready to close in on that, you see that little section on the bottom. And it says something like trending now or top 10 or because you've watched this show, you might also like this. So now you spend another 20 minutes browsing that watching 10 different trailers to see if the recommendations actually live up to the hype. And by this point, you're exhausted and you don't even care anymore. 
So much so that you probably end up watching something like The Sound of Music, which you've already watched like a hundred times already, and probably against your will. When all is said and done, you have wasted close to 45 minutes to an hour on something that probably should have taken you two minutes to decide. The point I'm trying to make here is that distractions like these take up our time and we don't even realize it's happening. The next way to make Bible study a priority is to devote time to God's word. Frequently, time spent reading and studying God's word individually is interrupted by our duties to the workplace. As human beings, we often emphasize the importance of our income and financial gain over studying the Bible. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. That's Matthew chapter 6. And we're just going to look at verse 24. In verse 24 it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But I want both. This is usually a common reaction that we're faced with when we have a choice between two desirable things. It's also natural or a natural response to this teaching from Jesus on money, which was also part of the Sermon on the Mount. Those committed to the Lord desire to store up treasure or rewards in heaven. And they desire to serve him by making right choices out of sincere devotion. God-fearing people can also desire to build wealth in this world, to feel financially secure, and to accumulate possessions and experiences that please them. And I think that's just human nature. Jesus does not say here that it is wrong to want both service to God and material wealth. But what he does say in crystal clear terms is that one cannot place ultimate priority on both at the same time. And at some moments in life, one must choose which is more important. Christ's calling forces those who would follow him into such choices. You see, Scripture puts this in the context of servanthood. It doesn't work for a servant to be co-owned by two independent masters. And this is why such a thing isn't practice or has not been practiced. The servant can only prioritize one or the other. Now, they might be loyal in a sense to both, but separate masters will command the servant in different competing directions. And as a result, the servant will naturally grow or hate to despise one of the two while growing to love and be devoted to the other. Jesus is casting human beings as slaves either to God or to money. And those who surrender themselves to following Jesus become servants of God for life. Those who prioritize building wealth for themselves on earth surrender themselves as slaves to materialism. As slaves depend on their masters to provide everything that is needed... Those devoted to money or to God also depend on their respective masters to provide for them. The demands of those two masters will always compete. So Jesus concludes, a person cannot serve both God and money. 
This does not mean that someone who serves God wholeheartedly will not have money or possessions. Jesus is not suggesting that Christians must be poor or destitute or flee from any kind of luxury. I don't know about you. I enjoy having a car to be able to go from one place to another. And it doesn't mean that being a Christian is incompatible with being quote unquote rich. What he means is that a person sincerely serving God will not organize their lives around the acquisition of wealth. You see, money for a righteous person is just another tool given by God to be used for his purposes. But devoting our efforts to accumulating money is not the only thing we do with our time. Have you ever thought about some of the subtle ways we devote time to other things in our lives? Here's some real world examples. How much time do we devote to getting ready before we just walk out into public? Now, I know all the men in this room are looking at me like, I put on my shoes, I put on my jeans, I put on my t-shirt, and I'm out the door. What's this guy talking about? But here's an interesting study that was done back in 2019. It showed that the average woman takes 55 minutes to get ready each day. Now, maybe this example will apply to more of the male audience in attendance today. How much time do we spend watching our favorite sports teams? As residents of Kansas City and the surrounding area, we all like to brag about the fact that, hey, or the Super Bowl champs. But here's a fun fact. The average NFL game lasts three hours and 12 minutes. Let's switch it over to exercise. My wife and I like to go for walks in the park. Right now it takes us on average about an hour to walk three miles. Now, full disclosure, one of us may be hindered by a certain physical condition that may cause them to walk slightly slower than what they normally would. But here's my point. We all devote time to certain things, but does devotion to studying God's word fit into our busy schedules? So to quickly recap, the first way to make Bible study a priority is to remove distractions from our life. The second is to devote time to studying God's word. And the last is developing a desire to know the truth. Remember being a kid and you were just curious about everything? You wanted to know the answer to things and you just wandered about the most random stuff. And I don't know if any of you here have thought about this, but before the internet became a thing, your quickest and best source of information was actually your parents. You had a random question about something and you would just walk up to your parents, you'd ask the question, they would respond, and they would, you would just walk away thinking, wow, they know everything. And of course, parents in the room, you do know everything, right? When your kids are in the room. But I'm here to tell you as a teacher in the year 2023, I'm here to tell all parents of young children in the room that you better make sure when answering your children's questions, especially as they get older, that you're correct. 
Because the first thing they do is they're going to whip out their phone or they're going to find a desktop computer and they're going to Google search what you just asked or what they just asked you. And if you're wrong, probably going to let you know about it. I'm going to give you a real world example of how this applies to my life. Early on in my teaching career, I had a student in the middle of class ask, how many planets are in the solar system? Now, I, with great confidence and no hesitation, I was like, well, there's nine, duh. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. We all know that. But the next day at school, the student came up to me and he said, hey, coach, you know that question I asked you? I'm like, yeah. Uh, The Internet says there's only eight planets in the solar system. Now, in my head, I'm like, how did we lose a planet? My nerd mind went to Star Wars for a little bit, and I'm like, who invented a Death Star and destroyed one of the planets, and I didn't even know about it? Well, it turns out, guys, that Pluto is no longer considered a planet. That's not what I was taught when I was in school. But I guess it's probably a good thing I teach social studies as opposed to science, at least for the kids' sake. You see, today we have easy access to information. And if we see a story on the news that captures our interest or a social media post that we question or maybe disagree with, or it could be a heated debate with a friend or family member, where do we instantly go to get verification? It's the internet, right? You see it. We as human beings have a natural inclination for the truth, but are we seeking truth that comes from human minds Or are we seeking the truth that comes from Scripture? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is where Jesus responds to a temptation during his 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness. In this verse, Jesus is being tempted by Satan, who suggests that he should use his divine powers to turn stones into bread in order to satisfy his hunger. However, Jesus resists the temptation by quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And in this book, it says that man shall not live by bread alone. The deeper meaning behind this verse is that the importance of spiritual nourishment and reliance on God's word. Jesus emphasizes that life is not just about physical sustenance, like food, but also about nourishing one's soul through the teachings and guidance of God. It conveys the idea that human beings need more than just material things to truly live a meaningful and fulfilling life. You see, by resisting the temptation to use divine power for self-gratification, Jesus sets an example of humility and obedience to God, as well as trust in God's provision. This verse serves as a reminder for Christians to prioritize spiritual growth and to seek nourishment from God's word to sustain their relationship with God. So we went through four key characteristics of the Bible. 
It's living and active. It endures forever. It's the inspired word of God. And it contains heavenly promises. Keeping these key characteristics of the Bible in mind, we must ask ourselves, how do we make Bible study a top priority in our lives? This is done by eliminating distractions, by devoting time to studying God's word, and developing a desire to know the truth. I want you to think back to that opening story about that man named Bob. He was a husband, he was a father, an employee, and a provider, but he was also a Christian. His life was busy, demanding, and full of all kinds of different responsibilities. Just like Bob, our lives can be hard to manage. But are we dedicating time to studying God's word? As brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a responsibility to make this a practice of greatest importance. No matter where we are in our spiritual walk, we have never reached the summit of biblical understanding. And we should always strive to keep growing. And doing so is not only pleasing in the sight of God, it is edifying to fellow Christians and it motivates all of us to continue our learning. So in conclusion, being a Christian is more than just coming to church on Sunday and listening to a sermon. Just like students in school will not learn everything they need to know in one short lecture, followers of Christ cannot be satisfied with being passively present once on the first day of the week in order to understand God's word and its totality. We must be actively engaged in what we're doing if we are to learn and if we are to grow. I want you to also think about your children. They need to see you making it a priority to read and study the Bible. What you prioritize in your household, they will emulate later on in their adult life. The world is full of many things that take away from our focus of what is most important. And I'm not here to point the finger at anybody because I know that I have fallen short in this area many times in my life. But we must remember that eventually we will stand before God and we will give an account of our life. And when he asks why we didn't sacrifice more time to him instead of worldly pleasures, what can we say? He sacrificed his only son for us. So I challenge all of us in this room here today to be proactive in making Bible study a focal point in our lives and to continue to support each other in achieving and maintaining this goal. That's why Bible study is so important in a Christian's life. Maybe you've been listening to God's word and studying the Bible and want to make that decision to follow Christ. Maybe you're already a follower of Christ and haven't been living as you should. Let us know. All together we stand and while we sing.